Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. Well, we have some announcements today. We will have uh, communion at the end of the service, so that's open to anyone who's a believer, who's a Christian. Um, we'll uh, just invite people to come up and receive of the cup and the bread, and then I will lead us in a prayer together. Um, it's a great time to proclaim our Lord's death till he comes. He is the living God. He is the glorious king who's given his life for ours so we could live. And uh, how awesome it is to have, have this life and then eternal life in his presence forever. Um, some things that are happening, we have a men's barbecue um, this Saturday at 6.30 at the home of Chris Roden. So the Rodens will be hosting. And uh, that's Chris. So RSVP with him and uh, bring some drinks, sides, or desserts to share. Um, we do have a church barbecue towards the end of this month as well on a Sunday. Um, and then there is a biblical dinner coming up in the end, toward the end of September. And we'll hear more about that next week. But there is a sign-up list out in the foyer. So please uh, check it out. And that's a great opportunity to be part of. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 today, if you'll turn there, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are um, a miracle worker. Thank you that you do open our eyes to see. We who were once blind, we who were once dead in sins, you've raised to life through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And we thank you that you have purposes and plans for even the difficult things in life that you allow. That you have, uh, you are a redeemer. You are a savior. You are the one who lifts our heads. And we come to you today as the author of wisdom to Jesus who is wisdom for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. That you'd give us understanding of your word and that it would change the way we think. It would change the way we live. It would uh, just become fruitful in our lives for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 2. Years ago, I had a coworker who was, uh, he, he would always play the lotto when it was getting like over 100 million. Like, it's not worth playing when it's less than that. And he was always fantasizing over what he would do if he won. And he would always ask me, what would you do if you won? And uh, I, I always annoyed him because my answers were like, well, I'm working on this, my driveway, and, you know, it'd be good to pay that driveway off. And he's like, well, Ben, come on, think big. You could get a totally new house. Like, forget about the driveway. You could have a house with a perfect driveway and a pool and, you know, a, a boat ramp and all these things. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so he, lives in the, he lived in this kind of fantasy land that he would never experience. But, uh, well, at least he hasn't yet. But the statistics show that the experience of those who win are actually can be negative at times. Um, if you were to look at the evidence, right, the evidence of those who've won, that some lucky, lucky winners feel like they've been cursed since winning. And it says that if you win big, the chance of you going bankrupt within f five years, it's exponential. So there's a greater chance of losing everything that you have when you win big, which is a bit ironic. Some fall into expensive and addictive habits like drugs or gambling. Or, um, and you have this happiness of winning big, but then the despair as you've seen it slip through your fingers. And you realize, like, I'll never get that back. And uh, 
So the thing that you're looking for to satisfy you, to make your life better, it doesn't make your life better. It actually makes it, you remain as or more miserable. And so it's wise for us to learn from the mistakes of others, right? Um, sometimes it requires personal experience for us to learn. Um, like we have to experience the mistake ourselves to avoid those pitfalls. But it's good to look at God's word and hear what he's saying and to take it on board. Not as just, well, that's good advice for life. But this is God's word for us, to us. And Solomon, he is talking about life from a worldly perspective. A man who was very wealthy, very powerful and influential. And he says, through my study, I have concluded that Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything under the sun is meaningless and worthless. He, he was dreaming and pursuing satisfaction and pleasure and happiness, but in the end, he ended up empty. He was kind of like, imagine that you're just arriving to the lake and you've plotted where you're going to be fishing and, and there's a, Solomon is coming off the, the, off the lake in a boat of his own. He's like, mate, don't even bother fishing in this lake. There isn't a fish here. I have used state-of-the-art um, scanning equipment. I have scanned every millimeter of this lake. There is not a fish here. There are no fish. And you're like, oh, he's just trying to hide the good spots. <laughs> of course he's going to say that, right? Oh, he, maybe he stinks as a fisherman. Great king, but terrible fisherman. We'll show him. And so you launch out to find those fish. You're going to prove them wrong. And it's like day after day, you haven't had a bite. You haven't caught a fish. You're looking around. You're like, you know, everyone who leaves this dock has not had a fish in their possession. And when you say, did you have a bite? Oh, no, real slow day. Well, at some point, would you say, you know what? I should have listened to Solomon. He was right. There actually isn't any fish in this lake. And I just keep coming back to it, hoping that there would be. And so that's what he's saying. If you're looking for satisfaction or pleasure or lasting happiness on this world, it is not to be found. If you think that you can find satisfaction and fulfillment in having things or achieving things or building things, guess what? It's meaningless. It's empty in the end. So let's be those who believe God's word. He's like, well, if I had the wealth of Solomon, then I could know. Like, I want that problem. No, let's, let's, let's listen. Let's listen to what God has to say in Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. So Solomon, he is determined to pursue experiences and accomplishments that everyone else idolized. The same pursuits that every person in the world desires. He's like, I'm going to set my heart to do those things. Let's see how to best enjoy life. And it's like, could it really be that everything under the sun is meaningless? Is it really futile? Surely not. And so he's pursuing happiness, laughter, and fun. Maybe he surrounded himself with funny people, or he hired actors or comedians to do skits and entertain him. And it's ironic that some of the funniest comics of our day suffer from depression. It's called the sad clown paradox, where there is this high of getting people to laugh and being funny, but then there's a low that comes as well. And whether it's laughing at a joke or something that's funny, 
um, or making other people laugh and the satisfaction that comes from it, that anxiety and sadness can only be relieved for a, a short time. And then there's this low that comes. And he concluded, you know, laughter is vanity. It makes a mockery of a man. And what does, it, what does it actually do? What does it accomplish? And how many times have you seen something that was funny and you try to tell someone else and you're still kind of reveling in how funny it was, but you're trying to explain it and they're like, oh, huh? And you forget the punchline and then you're like, well, it was really funny at the time. Like, believe me, it was great. I'm not really conveying it well, but you should check out that video or only if you could have had that experience, you could be happy too. But it, it's a feel-good medicine that the effects wear off quick. So guided by wisdom, he's now turning to wine, fine wine. He's gratifying his flesh, and he's spared no expense of getting the best grapes, uh, finding the perfect spot for his vineyards uh, and producing. And he had as much as he wanted. He could import whatever he wanted. So he has exotic flavors and, and uh, styles. And he, he has as much as he wants to drink himself and to share with others. Wine, it was very common to accompany meals and feasts and celebrations in Israel. And he says, it's not without dangers, as we read in Proverbs 20, verse 1, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So he understood, Solomon, that drinking wine to excess, it can impair judgment. It can create unhealthy dependence. It can even lead us astray from God. And so it says, if you're led astray by it, that's not wise. You just have to be cautious. And despite his wisdom, he says he was guided by wisdom in this pursuit of gratifying the flesh. I'm sure that some days he woke up with a headache and the previous night was a little fuzzy. And uh, those delicious flavors and good feelings, they gave way to lousy ones. Where he's like, please do not open those drapes today. I will get up when I'm ready. Uh, continuing in verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So then he sets himself to accomplish these monumental and lavish building projects. I did take a couple pictures back in 2005 in the Temple Institute um, when you were allowed to take pictures inside. And so we have a model of the temple that uh, Solomon built. So you see, uh, it's quite, the, these little things are people, right? It's a, it's a grand, grand building. An a building that took seven years to make. Next one. So that's, uh, you know, the picture of the, you have the altar here. You've got the entryway into the holy place and you've got the little places where the animals would be kept and sacrificed and like it's all very ornate, very beautiful. Solomon made sure that all the stones were quarried off site so that there would not be the sound of a hammer or a workman's tool in the holy place. I mean, he, 
was very precise with his building of this temple that took seven years. But notice 1 Kings 7.1, it says, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished his own house. So he starts with the temple, seven years building, but he took 13 on his own house. So he was really extravagant in building that house. Took almost twice as long. And then we're told in Ecclesiastes, I made my works great. I built myself houses. So he didn't just build one house. He built lots of houses, even a house for his Egyptian bride. And not only that, he's planting vineyards. He's planting orchards. He's irrigating them. He's, he's bringing the water in. He's solving problems. He's getting stuff done. And he's throwing himself into this custom building and with modern comforts and beautiful architecture designing things. And not only that, he's, he's acquiring male and female servants. He has, these people are having children in his employ. He has numerous flocks and herds. And he says more than anyone has ever had before coming to Jerusalem. Like he unprecedented wealth. His annual take of gold from tribute and taxes was 666 talents of gold. One talent is about 34 kilos so in modern day value, you're talking over $2 billion in revenue that he's generating. Now we buy a song or an album off iTunes. He had, he hired and owned singers, musicians, like he owns the band. It's like, who do we want to listen to today? Oh, let's bring them out. They have some great hits. And then, and they were his, he, they like literally lived in his house. The word translated musical instruments in the NIV and the New Living, other translations, it's harem or concubines. So this word, it's, it's not really perfectly understood what it means, but between musical instruments, between concubines, we know he had all kinds of women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His wives were of royal blood. In addition to his Egyptian bride, 1 Kings 11.1, 1, it says that he loved princesses of Moab and Ammon and Edom, Sidon and Caden. The only wife that we know by name was the mother of Rehoboam, which is Naamah of Ammon. That's the one wife that we know of. So picking up in verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward for all my la from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So he's like, I didn't stop short of any pleasure. If I wanted something, it's mine. If I wanted to do something, I did it. And I'm giving myself to pleasure, to fun, these massive construction projects, landscape architecture, you know, good music, good wine. He's got workers and servants, flocks and herds, gold, silver, wives. No one could compare to his wealth. And by his, his wisdom, he was quite famous. The queen of Sheba heard of his wisdom and traveled all that way just to see for herself what she had heard about. 
There's few people that have lived like Solomon did, where he's like, if I want it, it's mine. If I want to do it, I do it. It's like, hey, do you guys feel like a Macca's run? And, and we, you know, have a late night snack. But I'm, I was... I was reminded where he says, you know, if I wanted something, I got it, of Elvis. He had this uh, hankering for a sandwich at night. It's, it's late at night. And so he hops on his private jet and he has his pilots take him to Colorado from Tennessee for a sandwich. And uh, because I know that it is not in the, it's not desirable to the Australian palate, I thought I would just tell you what he traveled for. So it's called the fool's gold loaf. And I have a picture of it. It's basically a loaf of a loaf of bread hollowed out a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jam and a pound of bacon for 50 bucks. He had 22 brought to him. So he flies to have this midnight snack. They estimated it cost around 16 grand. And he's like, yeah, I want a sandwich. Well, Solomon could one-up him. I mean, Solomon, there's really no comparison between him and Solomon. He's like, I denied myself nothing that I wanted. I want it, it's mine. And then he's like, my reward is the satisfaction of this labor. And he took a step back and he saw everything. And he's like, it's all meaningless. It's all empty. It's all futile. The flocks, the herds, the extravagant dwellings. He's like, there's no profit under the sun. And I believe most people in the world, and maybe some of us in this room, don't really believe him. Like, oh, come on. Come on, there's something there of value. I mean, you have billions. You have, uh, there's more to experience. And he's like, no, there isn't. I've done it all. I have pleased my flesh in every possible way. And I can tell you by experience There is no profit under the sun because we don't have or haven't experienced what Solomon has. We struggle to accept that everything he had and did was empty and meaningless. He's like, the things that I've done, the things that I have, they can never satisfy me. It can't fill me. And maybe Solomon was likely surprised to feel underwhelmed and bored with his palace, his wine, his music, his wife's. Uh, Morgan, he's quoted in the Enduring Word commentary. It says, this is as modern as ennui, a feeling of dissatisfaction, uselessness, weariness, and discontent of every human soul which seeks knowledge, wealth, mirth, and life, and forgets God. All Solomon had, all he did, in the end, it was of no benefit to him. Now, we have experienced this on a much smaller scale. You've received exactly what you asked for, the thing you've researched and purchased, but it didn't do it for you. You're like, ah, it doesn't really work like it's supposed to. I heard these great things about it and it it doesn't work or it broke or you had to return it and it had problems. You're like, I want the walls to be this color. Here's this paint chip. And then the walls are painted and you're like, oh, that's not what I wanted at all. It's it, but it's exactly what you wanted. You asked for it but it doesn't match. You've been dissatisfied by your expectations of a trip or an event. You've, you've opened the fridge that's full and say, I'm hungry, but what is there to eat? And then you ate it and God didn't quite do it for me, but you ate it. 
We always chase the first high. We always want to return to that good feeling. And then when you have that good feeling, you're like, I wish this could last forever. And you're dissatisfied because this great thing you're experiencing isn't permanent. We want to recreate that excitement. The new becomes old and the more we see, have, and do, it only adds to our emptiness. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 12. Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what has, he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon has this scientific uh, objective approach to life. And he's considering wisdom, madness, and folly. He's like, what constitutes skillful living? What, what is it to make a wise decision? To use shrewd business tactics. How the mind can be disordered by passion. How, how making silly or impulsive decisions, maybe that's the way to live. To be impulsive, to, to not plan, to not prepare, just to do what feels good in the moment. Is, is that a better result? And so he's experimenting with his wealth and his wisdom in this pursuit of fun and happiness and meaning. And he's taken all these things to the human limit as king. And he concludes, well, wisdom's better than foolishness. Wisdom excels it as light to darknesses. Darkness. Wisdom is obviously the way to go. The wise man, he has eyes in his head and he's using his head. He's thinking about things and it's leading to safety and prosperity, protection and benefits. But the fool, he's someone who's in darkness. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where he's going to end up. Even when you say, hey, you're heading for trouble. You're heading towards a deep ditch. He, he doesn't believe you. He won't listen to you. And then he has a realization. He's like, hold on. Even when one walks wisely, when one's careful about his decisions, bad things can still happen to him. Why is this? The most foolish people can have good things happen to them. They can receive things they haven't worked for. Wise people can live in poverty. The wealthy, the fools can live like kings. I think of Nabal. His name meant fool. And he was a very rich man in Judah. He had incredible wealth, but he was foolish, stubborn, and stupid. It says that no one could speak sensibly with him. Like you couldn't even have a conversation with the guy because he was so full of arrogance and boasting and pride. He was proud. David is starving out in the field and Nabal is feasting like a king in his house. And you're like, how can this be? The champion of Israel doesn't have food for himself and his men, but Nabal is on a feast day and just partying hearty. Think about the people who are careful about eating healthy and exercising and they have a sudden health problem and pass away at a young age. And someone else, they're a three pack a day smoker and they live to be a hundred. And you're like, well, what? How does that work? 
Solomon says, I walked in wisdom, but the same thing happens to me that happens to the fool. You can do your market research. You can invest wisely and you can lose it all. Just like someone who spends it all on prostitutes and drugs. Like how, so he's just pondering this, mulling it over in his head. He's like, what's the point of being wise if the same thing happens to me as the fool? And then he says, the wise aren't even remembered. The good that they've done will be forgotten. So whether we are well or poorly remembered, it won't really matter to us. We won't be around to receive the praise or to be embarrassed or ashamed by what people say about us because we won't be here. But he's like being wise in itself is vanity because your good works will be forgotten and it doesn't guarantee good results. And so what's his conclusion? He's like, I hated life because the work that was done in the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon hated life. It was like a rigged game that you couldn't win. It's like, what's the point of playing by the rules if everyone's cheating? And then what's the point of cheating to win if winning is not satisfying or rewarding? And then it didn't matter if you lived a long time or a short time, if you had a big house or small house, you didn't have a house at all. Like, what is the point? Flying first class, it provides little benefit over economy. The aisle over the window, if the plane loses power and falls like a rock. Frequent flyer points you've acquired, they don't excuse you from being affected by the law of gravity. So he's like, yeah, like in the end, what does it matter? It doesn't benefit me. Under the sun, Solomon's distressed. He's like, I am distressed by this. My life demands attention and energy, but everything that I do, it's just vanity and grasping for the wind, empty and without meaning. Verse 18, then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turn my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Solomon is Solomon, right? King Solomon, he is hating life. He is hating his labor. And he hated the fact that everything he worked for and earned, he would have to leave to someone else who didn't work for it and didn't respect it as they should. It's like he could invest time to build a house, to build a company, to construct a beautiful palace, but it wouldn't always be his. I have a friend who took a lot of time and money to restore a classic car. I think it was a Camaro. It was beautiful. Custom paint job, custom interior. Just driving across the intersection, someone runs a red light and T-bones him and it gets written off. It's like you have this car always garaged, protected, custom. And where did it end up? Well, in a wrecking yard for parts in the rain. You know, being picked through by people. 
He, he paid for his toys, but he didn't get to keep them. No one but Solomon could have known the research and planning and the decisions that he labored and toiled over, literally keeping them up at night. And then he puts them into practice to build this palace just to have it become a party house later with wine stains on his imported rugs and nobody caring. And he's like, that is not right. I could put in all this effort to build these places just to be bulldozed later by someone who thinks they're an eyesore. I want to, I, I don't like that anymore. I want this. And he's like, this is vanity. It's empty. So he hated life. He hated his labor. And then he despaired of his labor. He spent 13 years building a house exactly as he wanted. And I guarantee you that when he was done, there were things he would have done differently. And he's like, yeah, why didn't we do that? Oh, I need to add another wing because it doesn't really contain everything that I want. And then, yeah, times change, people change. The house starts falling apart. And you're like, let's take this opportunity to improve things, right? So he's laboring with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then someone is going to inherit it. His heritage home would not always be his home. It would be Rehoboam's home or someone else. I once worked with a man who took great pride. He took me on a tour through his house. I was the apprentice and he was the foreman. And he, he takes me on his balcony. He's like, you know what? If you work hard, you can have a view like this someday. I'm like, oh, okay. One thing he didn't mention is that I couldn't keep it. Neither could he. You know, when you get divorced and when you move out of the country, you, you lose those things. But at the time, it seems like it's all that you need. This is something to aspire to, and you can get here someday, but you can't stay there. And so he's like, in the end, what do I have to show for all my labor and all my toil and all my work? My days are sorrowful. The work is burdensome. Even at night, I take my work to bed with me. It keeps me up thinking about how I can work things out or swing this deal or improve um, anything. Now, Paul, he writes in his first letter to Timothy, he says, don't engage with the believers that are proud, that refuse to submit to biblical truth. They're greedy. They suppose that gain is godliness. Um, if you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he flipped this around, um, that it's not gain that's godliness. They were justifying their ungodly means by the ends. They were saying, well, the church is growing, so God obviously approves of us. Or we're getting more wealthy, therefore we, are, we have earned favor in his sight. And Paul is going to just trash this view. So he flips around this assumption that gain is godliness. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 8, it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So it wasn't by their salary. It wasn't by the things they had. It wasn't their profit margin. It was in godliness with contentment they would find great gain. You know, people can be content to remain in their sin. So contentment is not really the issue. It's godliness that we need because godliness with contentment is great gain. 
in light of God's goodness and that every good gift that we have comes from him, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the jobs we have, we can actually enjoy them. We can find satisfaction in them as a gift from God that he has provided us. And so he can take these temporal passing away things and receive glory and thanksgiving for them. And it makes them significant. So the dull and monotonous task that can be done is unto Jesus. And there's an eternal benefit from it. Solomon was troubled. You know, I can't keep my heritage yet. The person who's content in God will lack no good thing. And this is awesome that life isn't about acquiring stuff and keeping them, but being kept by God who always provides for us. Matthew Henry wrote this ungodliness is commonly punished with discontent and an insatiable covetousness, which are sins that are their own punishment. I don't always think of sins as their own punishment, but it rings true. If we are without contentment in this life, it means we're not enjoying the life and all that God has given us. You know, it says in one Peter one, three, it says, according to God's power, infinite power that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us all things. So not will give. He has given all things nothing held back that pertains to life and godliness. And so in light of that, how can we not be content? If you are not content with the things you have, you have not understood what God has given you. And we go, how can I not be content? Well, quite easily. We start looking around at the world like Solomon. We start looking at our lives like Solomon was and saying, you know, like, well, how come they have this? And how come I don't have that? And how come when I do this, it doesn't work for me, but it works for them. And how come, and we start comparing ourselves with ourselves. We fix our minds on what we don't have rather than the God who is. When we sing that song, you are, that will always be true. God was, is, and will always be. And so we can trust in him that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And you know, godliness, that is reverence for God, acknowledging that his grace to us as our sovereign is always good without question. When your spirit departs your body, whatever you're holding in your arms stays here. All the clothes that you're wearing, they stay here. You look at the Pharaohs, right? They're elaborate burial chambers and all the stuff that's supposed to help them in the underworld. Well, all that stuff is still here. They didn't use it. They couldn't take it. It was useless to them. And if our lives are marked with discontent and we covet what we do not have. It is godliness that we lack. Some of us try to be content as if we can be content in greed, be content in covetousness, be content with ingratitude. We have to become like, we have to embrace godliness and then contentment comes. He chastens us so we might repent So we recognize, hey, I'm not being content with what I have. I'm being covetous of what someone else has. Let's repent of that. Let's walk in the light as he is in the light. Those who walk in godliness will discover contentment. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 24. Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat? Or who can, have con- in, 
who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In light of man's inability to keep what he acquires, Solomon says it's good for man to enjoy what he has when he can. Like that's a good thing. That's from, that's a gift from God. And we see this sentiment in the law on the cusp of battle. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, the officers, before they went to battle, they were to ask the people. They said, have you built a house and you haven't dedicated? Well, go home, dedicate the house, lest someone else do. Is there someone here who has planted a vineyard, but you haven't actually um, drunk of the produce yet? Well, go home, go, go home. So you will be the one to receive of the benefits of the vineyard you planted. Or is anyone here, you know, recently you've been betrothed, but you haven't married your wife. Well, go home and marry her lest another one marry her. So there's this idea that like what God has given you, whether it's a house, whether it's a, um, you know, a vineyard or possessions, a wife, all good gifts from God. In Solomon's eyes, there's nothing better than enjoying the fruit of your labor. It's only when God came into focus that Solomon saw that life was worth living at all. That's where the significance to life came. It didn't come until God came into the picture. Though he could do things that other men could not, anyone can live like a king by enjoying all the good gifts God's given us. The simple things. Everything. It's like you can sit down to a bowl of cereal and feel like you're eating like a king because this is given you by the hand of God. And you're like, this is awesome. God's providing for me today. He's always provided for me and he will always provide for me. From the worldly perspective, Solomon, he slips into a legalistic view. He says that God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to a man who is good in his sight. We know that it's not out of our goodness he gives, but out of grace. God gives grace to the humble. And the things that we receive, it's not due to our humility, but we should be humbled to receive everything from the hand of God. God is gracious. God is generous. It's God who gives us life. And he's the only means to happiness and joy in this world. And so if you find pleasure in anything, it's a gift of God and he should get the glory and credit for it. Solomon observed the futility of those who do not fear God, that they toil to gain, they strive to keep. One day it's all going to be given away to someone else. Think of all that we treasure, all the things we cling to, all the things that are important to us will someday be parted from us. You know, everything under the sun. We can't keep it and our treasures will someday make their way to the tip. It's just the inevitability of things. Something that we just really pride ourselves on. Well, it's not going to be around forever. And the godly are not troubled by this because our security and joy and fulfillment is not in these things. It's in the God who's given us all things by his grace. So turn to Psalm 94 verse 11. Psalm 94, verse 11, for a point of application. It seems fitting since we're talking about the futility and meaninglessness of life under the sun. 
Psalm 94, 11 says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness and all the upright in heart will follow it. So God created man in his own image. He who created our eyes sees. He who created our ears hears, and he who created our mouth speaks. He's given us a mind to reason and think. He knows all things. And we have inherited, we have been given these abilities and the mental capacity from rational thought from God. And apart from him, all of our thoughts are futile. They're all meaningless. And uh, God's revealed himself so that we could um, receive his law, his word. He uses a scripture to correct the way that we think. And he does this um, to give us rest. It's like we can have rest and adversity while Solomon is hating life in luxury, right? He is just hating life. He's despising his work, but God gives us rest. God gives us rest from the days of adversity. Like we can be going through a trial and a trouble and God's with us. He continues to uphold us and help us. And on his own, the wicked will never escape that pit of discontent and covetousness. But notice verse 14, it says, for the Lord will not cast off his people, nor forsake his inheritance. Solomon saw all his labor and he knew that he would be passing along a heritage to his future, uh, the future generation. He would be giving inheritance to those who did not work for it. Now notice those who trust the Lord, we are his inheritance. We are God's gift to himself. Where he's like, you are my heritage. You are my inheritance that I will keep forever. And he will never cast us off. Isn't that awesome? For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor forsake his inheritance. He doesn't become bored with us. He doesn't become tired of our antics or our forgetfulness or our weakness. No, he delights in us. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, who believe in him. It was not a waste for Jesus to go to the cross and die for lost sinners because through that atoning purchase, he has procured us for himself his own precious permanent inheritance. It's like people can be focused on earth on stuff, but God delights in loving and treasuring us. And he doesn't get tired of us. He's not like, okay, I've heard that song too many times. I I never want to hear it again. I want to move on to something else. No, he loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear it when you speak to him, when you cry out to him. So today we remember the price that Jesus paid on the cross. He has given us an eternal inheritance in the heavens and an eternal reward that no one can take from us. He paid his, he paid for it on the cross with his own blood. He gave his life to atone for our sins and everything that Jesus said and did, it wasn't meaningless or grasping for the wind. It has eternal value. He did not die in vain because those who have received him have been born again been forgiven, have been uh, washed clean and made God's inheritance. And he never disappoints. You think about things that have disappointed you. God never disappoints. 
we can have rest, contentment, and peace with him. And so it's a good time as we receive of the cup and of the bread to examine our own hearts. Consider, do I value God? Do I value Christ more than everything else that's under the sun? Things that I have, things that I want that I don't yet have. Do I treasure him above all and the love that he has shown me? Because the bread, it represents the broken body of Christ, the cup, the shed blood of Christ, and that we have spiritually received this by faith in him. And so we do this in obedience. We do this to obey him, to proclaim him, to really rejoice in the love that he's shown us until he comes because he is alive. He speaks, he is in our midst. And uh, how awesome it is to have an eternal inheritance in a world where everything is grasping for the wind. Nothing's gonna last forever. We can't keep it with us. We will depart someday, but we will depart and be with him. And how good that is. What joy and gratitude and contentment we can have um, regardless of your net worth. So could I please uh, invite the worship team to come forward? They'll lead us in a song. And as they do, um, please come up and receive of the bread and the cup. And then I'll lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we are your inheritance, that you have claimed us and purchased us as your own. Thank you that you would lavish such love upon us where you have created the heavens and the earth and all the wonders of the world that, that inspire and put us in awe. And yet you would choose us over all these things that are passing away, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, but they are nothing compared to one soul that you have redeemed from destruction. And we thank you, Lord, for saving us, for giving us the gospel, for giving us hope of salvation. Thank you that you valued us to the point that you would give your only begotten son so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be your eternal heritage. And I thank you, Lord, for the things that you have given us. And forgive us, Lord, when we have not been content, when we have been covetous, when we have wanted things that we didn't have, when we felt hard done by because others have what we want and we have lost sight that you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, Lord, forgive us and bring us to a place of surrender before you and rejoicing in everything that you give us because we do find great pleasure in things of this life and uh, that comes from you. Thank you that these passing things can be um, made into eternal given eternal significance because it's a gift from your hand that we give back to you. And so Lord, we give ourselves to you as living sacrifices, as is our reasonable service. And we pray that you would use us, Lord, do your work in and through us to glorify your name and to give you praise with the things that you've given us, that we would rejoice in your work that you're doing and the work that you will do in and through us. We, we worship you, Lord, and thank you that you are wise and good and that you've given us a life that's worth living because Jesus is our life and his wisdom for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.